0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from just the news. You know our routine. We give you facts, no opinion. And we've got a lot to talk about today, Tuesday in America. Yes, there's another election uh, between Joe Biden and uh, Bernie Sanders. Six, in fact, tonight. The big prizes are Michigan and Mississippi. And the real question for many of my colleagues is which virus will worst impact America, the coronavirus or the one that spread through the Russia collusion case and corrupted our law enforcement system. We're going to talk about both of those challenges in the next few minutes. uh, As we get queued up for a very exciting interview today, my good friend and the great journalist Peter Schweitzer is joining us to talk about his new book, Profiles in Corruption. Yes, that's a play on the old John F. Kennedy book you probably read in history class, Profiles of Courage. Well, Peter Schweitzer has profiles of corruption, taking a look at the culture of corruption inside the Democratic Party. And we're going to be talking to him quite a bit. You're going to want to hear this interview. He's got all sorts of revelations, all sorts of unique things about Joe Biden, Ukraine, China, uh, and many of the other Democrats that appear in his book. Uh, And then we're going to talk about a scoop I have that's sweeping across America today about the importance of the latest statement from the FISA court. And of course, we've got that election and we got coronavirus. We're going to be back in just a few seconds. First, we're going to go to a commercial break. Stay tuned, support those sponsors. We'll be right back. All right, folks, welcome back to the commercial break. And uh, thanks for supporting our sponsors and supporting the show and listening with the uh, faithful attendance that all of you are doing. It's so grateful. uh, I'm so grateful that you're doing that. And I hope we can continue to bring big newsmakers, big scoops, and uh, inform you so you can go to the water cooler, the dinner table, the boardroom. And give people the truth, just the facts, uh, just the news. That's what we're about. All right. It's a big day in America today. Another round. uh, We call it mini Super Tuesday. There's six elections on tap tonight, six primaries. The big prizes are Mississippi and Michigan. And this could be the night that Joe Biden takes an insurmountable lead against uh, Bernie Sanders. Just a few short weeks ago, Bernie was in the lead and Biden was in fourth and fifth place. But so much has changed as the establishment has rallied behind Biden to counter the Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist takeover of the party. And uh, if uh, Biden can beat him in Michigan, a place where Sanders won four years ago, and if he can win in Mississippi on the strength of the black vote, uh, I believe that Joe Biden could be in the front seat and uh, Bernie Sanders could be in the utility cart behind the car. He'll be falling further and further behind. So that's a dynamic to watch, and uh, big big stakes in tonight's election. Michigan and Mississippi are the two bellwethers to watch. Now, uh, se- uh, secondly, we've got coronavirus. There's no doubt. There's a lot going on. We have several lawmakers who were exposed to a corona patient, uh, coronavirus patient at CPAC. They're self quarantining. None of them are are sick, but they're Ted Cruz, um, uh, Doug Collins. And um, Paul Gosser and um, President Trump's new chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who was also at CPAC before he was a chief of staff. So far, there's no alarm, no worry, just uh, an extra dose of precaution, which at the end of the day is the message that the Trump administration, the health professionals are giving, which is, hey, this is a bad flu. It goes around. It's uh, something you just have to be conscious of. You wash your hands. If you feel sick, you stay home. You don't uh, uh, take chances. Don't go on cruises right now. There's a lot of mitigation, but at the end of the day, there shouldn't be any panic. And the good news is the market panic that we saw on Monday reversed itself today. The Wall Street is doing pretty well. But the the real focus now, I think, over the next two weeks, our reporting at Just the News indicates our health officials trying to keep the most vulnerable people, the elderly, those with compromised lungs, those with asthma, uh, those with organ damage, particularly those with kidney disease, keep them from getting the virus because that's where the high death rate is. And then just kind of limit the spread with smart things so that other people don't get the flu-like symptoms for those people who get it with a more mild case. Uh, containment, uh, smart prevention, and really a focus on the vulnerable. That, that's where it's going to go. This is going to get bigger. It's going to sweep across the nation more. There are going to be more cases. The goal is to limit deaths by targeting uh, for prevention, targeting from containment, those who are most at risk. And I think everything is at play. You saw the efforts over the weekend to recommend uh, that elderly people don't fly or vulnerable people don't fly. Uh, And for most people to avoid cruise ships, those tight quartered opportunities where a virus can pass quickly, avoid them for a few months. We'll be through this. That's the conventional wisdom that our health professionals are giving us. And so far, it seems to be holding up. Um, But there's another virus I want to talk about, and uh, it has to do with an exclusive story I have on Just the News this morning. Uh, The title is The 21 Words That the FISA Court Uttered That Changed the Russia Case Forever. What am I talking about? Well, Judge James Bosberg, the new sheriff in town, the new chief of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the court that gave us the Carter Page surveillance warrants back in 2016 and 17. He issued an opinion late last week and the original news was, hey, uh, FBI, all of those people that participated in the Carter Page FISA warrant application, the flawed, mistaken, erroneous, uh, full of lies application, uh, they should not appear before the court and they will not be allowed to appear before the court until we find out if they were engaged in intentional misconduct. That was a good headline, very important, the first true punishment or consequences or accountability um, uh, rendered by the court. But the text of the ruling has a far more significant, far more historical importance, and I focus on a very important part uh, of what the judge said. At the end of the day, what Judge Bosberg for the first time said is, This wasn't a FISA error due to process mistakes. This was a serious lack of candor before the court. Let me interpret that. That's judicial speak. Uh, He's accusing the FBI of lying and misleading the court and the Justice Department officials who signed it as well. Why is that important? For the first time, the court, the FISA court, the Nation's Intelligence Court, has said to the James Comeys and the Rod Rosensteins of the world, your processes didn't work, Your excuse making doesn't sit well with me. You and your team, the downstream FBI agents and the senior leadership of FBI and DOJ misled my court, and I'm not going to take it anymore. We need to make more drastic um, changes to ensure that everybody who signs off on a warrant in the future isn't just signing off on it based on a briefing. They know what's in the document is true honest, accurate. And you know, uh, new director of the FBI, Chris Wray, has put a lot of focus on process changes he made, and the court commends him for doing that. But the court also says in this ruling uh, to the FBI and to the DOJ, process changes alone will not fix the problems, the egregious problems that occurred in this case, it needs a cultural change as well. People in the FBI have to realize they have an obligation to not only tell me the evidence that is most incriminating, but to also be honest about the evidence that points towards innocence, that exculpates innocent people like Carter Page and George Papadopoulos and others. The, um, it is a very poignant statement. And uh, if you remember, a few, mu- uh, a few months ago, there were these speeches by Rod Rosenstein, The former deputy attorney general under Trump, the guy who ran the Russia collusion case, signed one of the warrants. And, of course, James Comey, uh, both on his book tour and in his congressional testimony, they made a big deal that they didn't think there was any intention, any big serious problems with the FISA. Uh, Of course, the IG back in December, Inspector General Michael Horowitz of the Justice Department, put a lot of that uh, uh, debate to rest by highlighting 51 factual errors in the Uh, FISA warrants 17 serious instances of misconduct. But the court itself had never addressed the issue of whether it felt misled. And that occurred for the first time thanks to Judge James Bosberg, the new chief judge of the FISA court. He has made it clear that the excuse making that the Comeys and the McCabes and the Rosensteins and others made, Adam Schiff, uh, made about the bad FISA's. Will no longer be tolerated. There's a new sheriff in town. And the message is if you lie to my court going forward, the consequences are going to be serious. Now, that's an important development. It's an incremental step towards accountability. Now, the real question is will Attorney General Bill Barr, will uh, the court itself, will the FBI, uh, come up with prosecutions, disciplinary action, uh, disbarment, and other penalties to punish those who already have engaged in the misconduct we saw in the Russia case. If they don't, Judge Bosberg's, um, Bosberg's uh, ruling will ring a little hollow. It will be a nice warning, but there won't have been any consequence for past crimes, for past mistakes, for past misdeeds, for past misinformation. It is important for America to watch over the next two or three months to see what John Durham Bill Barr, the FISA Court and <clears throat> the FBI disciplinary process meets out what do they how do they punish the people that were involved in the Russia collusion delusion That will be a very important uh, moment of reconciliation of redemption, more importantly of accountability uh, for a uh, scandal that took away three years of our lives in America without the truth. So I'm excited to see what happens in the future. We'll keep you fully aware uh, and fully apprised on justthenews.com. So check us out frequently. We have a whole section on the Russia and Ukraine scandal, so you can quickly click on it and get your latest uh, fill of information. It's under the accountability tab. But now we're going to move to a different type of accountability, political accountability, political ethics In a few seconds, we're going to have the extraordinary Peter Schweitzer join us for a long interview. Yes, we're going to talk about his book, Profiles in Corruption. We're also going to talk about the state of the democratic race, the state of ethics in America. You are not going to want to miss this. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at BYTE.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with BYTE.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, we have one of America's greatest journalists with us, Peter Schweitzer. Welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having
0: me, John. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm addicted to your new book, uh, Profiles in Corruption. It is an amazing research project. Uh, I think if I did the count right, like 1,130 footnotes. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) I've read a lot of intelligence reports by the CIA that don't have nearly that much verification. It's (laughs) remarkable. What what a book. Um, Thank you. And uh, all of your great work. I've been a beneficiary of much of your work as uh, many times I followed up on your book and uh, and been able to get some additional journalism it, it your research is impeccable, and your instinct is is really something. so it's uh, congratulations on another another bestseller.
1: well, thank you yeah, it's it's you know we we try to do a lot of forensic work based on documents and and paper trails. Um, and that takes time. so I mean, the research on this book was more than twelve months, but you know it 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 works great because we we sort of build these stories out, but then you've got individuals like yourself who are, you know, terrific reporters to sort of uh, build on it uh, by doing, you know, old-fashioned gumshoe research, the sort of stuff that we're not really particularly well-equipped to do. Um, And it's really, I think, a way to to expose things that that generally are not being covered at all by the mainstream media.
0: Well, it's um, in an era of Twitter uh, where everybody's attention span seems to be less than 200 characters. It's sure fun to read something that had attention span and depth and and impeccable research. And and you keep delivering time and again for the country. So it is amazing. I I remember when I was back in high school in the early 80s that Profiles in Courage was required reading for uh, for those of us going into politics or into my Jesuit high school. But tell us how you came up with the name uh, Profiles of Corruption and why it fits what you ultimately found.
1: Uh, it's a great question. I wish I could take credit for it. Um, actually, it was uh, my editor, uh, Eric Nelson, who suggested the title um, Profiles in Corruption. Um, and, you know, the interesting part is he's a publisher at Harper, which is, of course, the same publisher that published John Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. That's so right,
0: 1956. It's
1: kind of an, yes, exactly. So it's a, sort of an interesting twist. Uh, initially, I wasn't sure if I liked it, um, but it certainly... Uh, I've proven to be wrong um, and, and think it really captures what, what we're really trying to convey is, you know, by looking at the leading progressives, people ask me, why are you focusing on, on progressives? You go after both sides generally. And, and I said, yeah, but these progressives are unusual, John, because, you know, everybody else in American politics, moderates, classical liberals, conservatives, libertarians, generally think the government is about the size it should be or it should be smaller. What progressives are basically telling us is we need a lot more power to fix America's problems. And, of course, there's, we can have a big debate about whether they would actually fix our problems, but they're basically asking us to entrust them with more power. That's right. and, and my question is, what have they done with the power they already have? And I think the only way you can really convey that is by giving a profile, how they climbed power, how they accumulated power, how their wealth has grown. Um, so that's the reason I think the, the, the title works very well and conveys what we're trying to do in the book.
0: Well, it, it does. And and you know what's funny about it is that uh, this particular group of, of uh, uh, progressives made billionaire and millionaire uh, words dirty words, right? Uh, it's bad to be a billionaire. I think uh, Bernie Sanders has said that. And before he used to say it was bad to be a millionaire, but then he became one himself. And so is Elizabeth Warren and so is Joe Biden. And Joe Biden's interesting because his whole life has mostly been in public service. How do you get to be worth multi-million dollar uh, yourself and your family, your son, your your brother, uh, and you answer that question in a very profound way. And so tell me a little bit about this millionaires club of uh, progressives.
1: Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. I mean, they they all, you know, political figures, whoever you look at, if they're engaged in corrupt behavior, which, of course, is not necessarily illegal, but it's corrupted to the system. They all kind of have a business model, I think. They They all decide to tackle it a certain way. So in the case of Joe Biden, You know, he could maintain the fact that for decades as a U.S. senator and later as vice president, uh, that he had a limited net worth. Um, But, of course, the net worth of his family members, those around him, his son, his brothers, his sister, was ballooning uh, because of his access to power. So his business model was to kind of offshore his corruption and to use his office to benefit his family. And, of course, now he is benefiting in return uh, in the case of somebody like Bernie Sanders, um, it's a little bit more, um, uh, I would say, small ball, um, <laughs> you know, right, in the right. sense that, it, and part of it is is looking just at Bernie's uh, uh, position. I mean, when you're mayor of Burlington, Vermont, there's only so much you can do. Now, in his case, he did actually put his wife on the payroll, first his girlfriend, later his wife on the payroll over the objections of the city council, um, and that's going to net you some dollars, um, but that's not going to get you the kind of money that Joe Biden has been able to get to uh, to his son Hunter and his brothers, etc. So I think it's a question of understanding how they operate, what levers of power they can actually manipulate, because that determines your ability to self-enrich, um, and how you can work sort of within the, the margins of official power. In the case of Elizabeth Warren, I talk about the fact that she was hired by Congress in the mid-1990s to write a very narrow part of federal bankruptcy law, right. which involved class action mass torts. And most of us probably have very little knowledge that this was going on, but she was being paid by taxpayers in the mid-1990s. Well, her now approximate $12 million net worth, is largely a result of the fact that she became a consultant to companies to help them navigate the laws that she had actually written, which is a, as you know, a, a game that occurs too far too often in Washington D.C., but she mastered it because she had the opportunity and she was willing to engage in that kind of behavior.
0: It's amazing, it, it really is. And you know, one of the things I like about this book, and because I've never been a great writer, I, I love, I'm a digger. But you, you not only have uh, great facts in your um, in your book, but you have great. Uh, literary uh, turns that really help people get the essence of what all these facts mean. And I just want to read you one short passage because uh, it really captured that Joe Biden went from being sort of the Delaware guy to sort of the global guy and what happens. And I'm just going to read this passage because it was one of my my favorite passages in the book. Uh, when, when Biden gets uh, named vice presidential nominee with uh, Barack Obama, you write, it boosted the fu- uh, Biden family fortunes to another level. Now, suddenly, there were opportunities on a global scale. The executive branch offers, offered an abundance of power to leverage, and the value of the Biden's family commercial deals, especially those of Hunter, James, and Frank, would skyrocket. Essentially, Biden, Inc. got to go global once uh, uh, President Obama named him as his running mate. Talk a little bit about what you found in China, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, because uh, there are some really remarkable Robust, rich deals that the Biden family cash in and after he's the Veep.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's so startling in the Biden case is the timing of it. So the kinds of deals, these kind of international global deals that several family members get, they never got before when Joe was just a U.S. senator, and they haven't gotten after Joe left the vice presidential uh, uh, mansion. So obviously this is connected to the political power that Joe Biden exercises. But you've got Hunter Biden. You've got Hunter Biden, who, uh, you know, obviously gets the deal in Ukraine. Um, and you've done some great digging and research uh, on this, John, really, to sort of broaden this, this story. Um, but what strikes you about this is the timing of it. You know, it's, it's everybody knows if you're in Washington, D.C., and your last name is, say, Biden or Bush, right. you're going to have certain advantages. That's, that's the way the system works. Of course. But what's stunning about the Bidens is the timing of it. You know, in February of 2014, Putin moves into Crimea, triggering the Ukraine crisis. In March of 2014, Barack Obama appoints Joe Biden as point person on Ukraine policy. And then in a matter of like three weeks... Hunter Biden starts receiving payments from Burisma in Ukraine.
0: It's amazing. Uh,
1: and as as often been pointed out, he has no background in energy, no background in Ukraine. He said so. so. Th- yeah,
0: that's right. He yeah. said it himself in that interview. In fact, he said, "I think I probably got the job because of my last name."
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. So it's, you know, so you've got Ukraine, then you've got the situation in China where he flies over with his dad on Air Force 2 to Beijing, China in December of 2013. The Vice President meets with Chinese officials. We don't know what Hunter was doing. He's he's admitted now that, that a business partner of his he introduced to his dad. Right. But that business partner is part of a deal that was finalized 10 days after they returned uh, flying on Air Force Two. And that was a billion-dollar private equity deal with the Chinese, later expanded to $1.5 billion. So that's the timing. And, and there are other deals, of course, that um, – Hunters involved in involving Kazakhstan has been reporting. I know you've done some of it on Romania. Um, so it's, it's this sort of United Nations of, of corrupt <laughs> deals. Um, yeah. And then you add to that his brother, Frank, who, you know, in November of 2010, um, a, a Biden family friend named Kevin Justice, this is the White House, according to White House visitor logs, right. meets with people in Biden's office. We don't know what they discussed, but within three weeks, this family friend, Kevin Justice, who has just started a new construction firm, announces that Joe Biden's brother, James, is going to be his new executive vice president. Wow. And what's, what's stunning about this is James has no background in construction, no background in project management. And then within about six months, the new construction firm, with a number two guy with no experience in construction, lands a contract for $1.5 billion to build 100,000 homes in Iraq. Um, that contract is later basically taken from them because they admit they don 't have the capacity uh to actually execute it. but the fact that they got the contract to begin with uh when Joe Biden was essentially in charge of reconstruction of Iraq, I think is another sort of stunning example
0: yeah these can 't be accidents appetite. yeah
1: yes, yeah.
0: The um, it's funny, I was uh, with a person who does a lot of business uh, in China. And when I I mentioned that we we got onto the subject of your book and he said, I've done a lot of Chinese deals. None of them consummated in 10 days or less. Only the Biden seemed to get that timetable. And uh, so there's a there's a fan who read your book and clearly understood, you know, understood the um, the timetable was in itself uh, telling. And um, I want to go back to something that. Uh, It seems to also be endemic. So after your great book came out in 2015, and we learned more about the Bidens in Ukraine, uh, a transcript was discovered. uh, I'm one of the people found, I think the Washington Post found, ABC News found it. It's in April of 2015, right as, right before, literally uh, days before Hunter Biden's appointment to the Burisma board is uh, announced. And in, in that transcript, Uh, Biden is in uh, Ukraine. He's meeting with the prime minister. I think his name is Grossmeier. And he says, you guys need to start ramping up your natural gas production. And I got some Americans that I think could help you. That's right from the Obama White, White House website, the actual transcript. Do you have any evidence that in some ways Biden, through his rhetoric, through his um, meetings, through the timing of contacts, actually set these deals in motion by kind of framing it generically and then letting the the chips fall into place the way the foreigners would figure out?
1: Uh, we don't, but I think it's, it's it's pretty clear what was going on, um, you know, and, and that's, I think, the problem, the surprising thing to me with the response of the media is sort of the lack of curiosity in this. I mean, everybody kind of knows what's going on. I mean, the yeah. But Burisma is not in the business of just paying, you know, politically connected Westerners and not expecting something in
0: return. That's right.
1: Um, And and, you know, and and they paid him for three years. Um, It's not like they were hoping to get something. They didn't get it. So they put him off the payroll. They clearly were paying for something. They weren't paying for his expertise. That's right. So what were they paying for? And as you point out, um, you know, Joe Biden took a number of steps that benefited uh, Burisma. And, um, you know, when people say, like, oh, well, but that was sort of consistent with U.S. policy, that's irrelevant. The fact is that you have a family member who is directly benefiting uh, from actions that you are taking to benefit a foreign industry. And those might have been good decisions, but the fact that that conflict exists uh, and the fact that you are taking actions to benefit, uh, it's pretty easy math, I think, for a lot of people to figure out. And that's what is stunning to me, the... The, the, the willingness that a lot of people seem to go. I understand political partisans who are, you know, defending one side or the other. Right. But the 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 backflips that certain people in the media are prepared to go to sort of pretend like, well, no, this this kind of thing goes on all the time and you know, it doesn't it's not really evidence of anything. That to me is just sort of a laughable uh, ignorance. Um uh and, and that's um ignorance that is enforced. They enforce it on themselves. It's not a ignorance from the lack of
0: fact. It, um it's part of the reason I think today that so many Americans of all different political stripes have lost so much confidence in the media because they're smart enough to realize there's some uh, thumb on the scale uh, going on when these reports come out and they try to dismiss things that common sense Americans get. And, you know, one of the great things we didn't know at the time you wrote your book in 2015, but we learned thanks to the impeachment hearings, was that you weren't the only one who perceived immediately the, a conflict of interest. George Kent. Uh, yeah. Marie Ivanovich and other State Department officials testified they saw the appearance of a conflict of interest. And Ken said he even tried to go to the Biden office at the vice president and raise the concern, but they told him they were too busy dealing with other matters, I think Bo Biden's death at the time, to address it. But the law doesn't say you get to let go of a, a appearance of a conflict of interest because you're having a sad time, or because you're doing good work on Ukraine, it's a righteous uh, decision you're making. It says if you create the appearance of a conflict of interest, you must step aside. And for the first time, we learned your reporting was validated by the State Department officials, who in real time saw what your reporting dug up.
1: Well, you know, you're exactly right, and I appreciate that. Um, You know, look, we, we had somebody at the time Named Secretary of State John Kerry. That's right. um, Who who could have, if Joe Biden had decided, um, look, this is too much of a conflict. This doesn't look right. We can have, we can either ask John Kerry or we could ask somebody else to step in and fill this role. Um, Biden chose not to do that. He kept the reins of power. In fact, in fact, you know, days before Donald Trump took office in 2017, January 2017, where was Joe Biden? Back in Ukraine. yeah, yeah, he was in Ukraine. and, and, and The so last he, foreign
0: he, trip he took as uh, yeah. vice president was to go back to uh, Ukraine.
1: Exactly. And and so, you know, these are the sorts of things that, and there are sort of excuses that are made. I mean, another excuse that's made is, you know, that Hunter Biden obviously has a, a history of substance abuse, and we're all, you know, saddened by that. You don't want anybody to go through that. That's right. Um, but again, that you don't get a pass because your son has a substance abuse issue. But even more to the point, you know, what's the excuse then going to be for the brothers or for the sister or for the son-in-law, the other members of the Biden family who benefited from his largesse as vice president? Are we now going to start making excuses for all of them? Um, What we're dealing with here is a systematic pattern of behavior that, that has all the elements to indicate um, that there is something going on here that 's deeply corrupt and and could potentially be illegal, you have the conflicts, you have the flow of money, uh, you have the timing of the flow of that money, and you have benefits that accrued from those in power, namely Joe Biden, to those that were paying his members of the family and and that 's sort of where we are and so I think it's important that we have movement on Capitol Hill to investigate this because of course i don't you don't other reporters don 't have subpoena power. Uh, but you've got to actually investigate these things, but you find a lot of people in the media pretending and acting as if this has already been investigated, and it hasn't it been hasn't. it's been looked at by journalists who've tried their best to piece together what I think is an extremely compelling story, but you need to have the subpoena power and the ability to actually look into. Uh, the official record and put people
0: under oath. Well, as it turns out, you must be prescient because the very next question on my list that I had jotted down in my notepad was, <laughs> what do you make of the decision by Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Grassley Senator, uh, and uh, Senator Graham to start delving into this? And now we get word that Mitt Romney may try to block a subpoena that would allow them to get access to key documents and a witness um why would Mitt Romney do that? Did you learn anything about Burisma or its board members over time that would explain or give reason to give us doubt about why Romney's doing this?
1: Well, we know that there are people uh, that have been aides and and uh, have been connected to Mitt Romney who are also connected to Burisma. Um, but the, the, the paradox for me in all of this was, you know, Romney made a point, and certainly, you know, you can you can have a discussion, debate about this, Romney made the point in the impeachment hearings that we needed to hear from witnesses. That's right. We needed to hear evidence. We needed to hear more. We needed to have a complete record here. His position could potentially be the opposite. Um, and, and again, for the life of me, I don't understand why people go through backflips to sort of, um, make excuses for the reason this shouldn't even be looked at. I mean, in this particular case, it's Joe Biden is running for president um and and therefore uh he should not be investigated um now there there are certain countries in the world authoritarian countries where they have rigged elections where if you serve in political office you're not even allowed to be investigated it it gives you a certain immunity
0: sure um ukraine's one of them actually if you're a parliamentary member you can't be investigated
1: exactly and 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 yet that seems to be what we're creeping towards here. Um, you know, my first exposure in, in writing about Joe Biden and Ukraine and China and these other issues was in March of 2018 in, in my book, Secret Empires. So right. this is not something you've been reporting on this for, you know, for years as well. The point is, is it's not as if Joe Biden is suddenly the nominee or appears to be the nominee and people are deciding to investigate him. That's this right. has been a looming story that has been ignored. And I had reporters at the time tell me that they didn't think it was a story because Joe Biden was no longer in office. And they said if he runs for office, maybe then we will look into it. Now, of course, the explanation is that now that he's actually running for office, it
0: looks political, he probably right?
1: shouldn't look into it because it's political. <laughs> so yes. the point is, apparently, we're never supposed to investigate certain
0: political figures. Now, you've captured that hypocrisy with uh, with such uh, prescience. You're so right about that. Um, there's an article in the last few days by a uh, Washington Post columnist, David Ignatius, pretty well known. He was the guy that had the Flynn tapes back in a few years ago. But he says something that's one of the first times I've seen the mainstream media jump into this issue and and say something that I think resonates with common sense. He wrote a column in the last few days saying, Joe Biden needs to have this conversation about Ukraine. He needs to acknowledge he was engaged in the appearance of a conflict of interest. That is the first time I've seen a mainstream media powerhouse columnist reporter dig in and acknowledge that what your book found, what George Kent testified to, what my reporting found, May actually be true. <laughs> there was the appearance of a conflict of interest, and the law required Biden to step aside.
1: Yes, no, I, I think that's 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 a very encouraging sign. I've, I've noticed uh, in recent days as well that the New York Times has run uh, ran a story. Yes, uh, involving the the you know the business ties between Joe Biden, his political power, and his sister Valerie. That's right. Uh, which I covered right in, in your book. book. Yeah. Yes, and uh, that that's again very very encouraging, but you know, for me, it's always a question of, you know, are you really digging and looking at things with enthusiasm? I I believe, as I know you believe, that, you know, all our political leadership needs to have scrutiny um, because, you know, power can corrupt and and, and some of them succumb to it, some of them don't. So we have to hold uh, power into account, into check by reporting. Um, And you ought to try, there ought to be, try to be some level of consistency. I'm not saying that every reporter, Covers every single story. People have certain beats, but newspapers like the New York Times, for example, who've spent a lot of time investigating uh, President Trump, should show at least some similar level of enthusiasm for investigating these stories as they relate to uh, Joe Biden and his family. And there just seems to be a gap there. So I'm very encouraged. I agree with you that that. There is a sense, I think, among increasing number of people that Joe Biden has to come out and discuss these issues and answer them. Um, But I think the reality is he's going to have a very hard time answering them honestly because there there are simply so many of them. Um, And, you know, his his initial response to all of this, you'll remember, John, was, you know, I have never discussed any business dealings with any members of my family.
0: Yeah, we know that not to be true now. (laughs) <laughs> his own exactly. son impeached him i mean hunter impeached yeah. him in the thing yeah
1: that's right and, and we know you know i report in in uh, profiles and corruption uh based on the account of joe biden's son-in-law
0: that's right how
1: he brings them into the oval office to meet with barack obama to help launch their business how does that happen if what joe biden said was true that yeah. he never discussed business it, it doesn't so the problem is you know I don't think it's enough for him to issue a statement. I don't think that's what Ignatius is asking for or what you're right. asking for what well, I, think he I wants a
0: conversation look. he called it a conversation. Yeah. I think that's the right word
1: yes, I think conversation is a great word for it um and and um you know, to give an account for this because to my mind, I have looked at a lot of political figures over the years.
0: Uh, of both I parties. I want to p- stress that yeah. out. I mean, your work on the M- McConnell, uh, China Connections in the last book uh, is epic. And no one, as I try to dismiss this book now, the left tries to dismiss, they ignore the fact you've been doing these type of reportings regardless of political strife. Republican, Democrat, you dig in because it's the issue that matters to you. Well, it, that's
1: exactly right. And so, you know, a few years ago, I did a book called Extortion. And right. in Extortion... I, I talk about how uh, Senator Roy Blunt, a Republican from Missouri, right. had three members of his family, of his immediate family, uh, who were registered lobbyists. Um, and that, to me, was pretty astonishing. Not not one member, not two, but actually three. three. Um, that was pretty stunning. But, you know, the Biden one surprised me because it's what I call the Biden five. Right. You have five members of his family. So the, the, the point is, is that when it comes to Joe Biden, it's not really something you have a quick conversation about because there was a certain lapse in judgment. Um, you're talking about a way of, of, of life and business for the family. Uh, and one of the things I point out in the book is in the 1970s, when, when Joe Biden was dating Jill, right. um, you know, his first wife, of course, tragically died in the car accident. He was dating Jill and the two brothers pulled Jill aside and Jill recounted the story. And they said, look, um, just to be clear, you know, our family's plan is for Joe to be president, and if we need to make sure you're on board uh, with this, Remarkable. if you're going to go for to marry this, and my point is, is this has been seen as a family enterprise, a family initiative, uh, and and the family I think expects and has been paid uh, for their loyalty and their support to Joe, and he's become the conduit for a lot of the largesse uh, that has flowed, flowed out of his political career.
0: It's um, it's an extraordinary thing, and and people ask, well, all right, so the guy's been in public service all these years. What's wrong with his family making a little money on the side? And the answer comes up, I think, in some documents that we we forced out recently in in one of the FOIA lawsuits, when uh, Barisma needs to call in the chit, right? When they need to stop this in in February of '16, when the pressure is building and, and the there's a rising investigation in Ukraine that could. Barisma back on the corruption trial path, um, the Burisma lawyers show up at the State Department and they don't invoke the owner's name. They don't invoke Mr. Zolchevsky. They don't invoke uh, the company's name or its good deeds or anything. They invoke one name. You need to make these corruption investigations go away because Hunter Biden is on the board That is why these ethics rules were put in place, and it's why I'm sure you wrote these stories in the beginning. When a vice president's son's name is used as a security card, a get-out-of-jail card, that's why the government ethics rules were put into place, and um, it just validated, you know, those came out long after your book, but it validates exactly why people should be troubled by this relationship.
1: No, you're exactly right. And the the, the documents that you've uncovered and and that have been put out there, I mean, speak to how this power is exercised. It's it's not simply a, a question of um, you know, somebody tossing favors, somebody tossing flowers at the family and the family right. catching them. It is it is a relationship that that it's known how it's going to function. And Ukrainians knew that if they are wedded to the Bidens, that they can expect favors in return. Um, and and that is precisely what you're seeing in that conversation with the State Department. We're gonna we're gonna make this conversation about the vice president's family and, and, and you know, get this investigation handled rather than actually talk about the owners who are running the company.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now that when you get a check, there's always a promise that comes with that check. It's never no (laughs) no money in Washington is free. I think Bill Proxmire, the great Wisconsin Democrat, who first trained me or spent some time with me when I came to Washington, that was one of the lines he left indelibly in my brains, which is if somebody wrote a check, it didn't come free. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was a
1: great he was a great leader. The Golden Fleece. The Golden
0: Fleece Award. Yes. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because we just started a new one called the Golden Horseshoe here at Just the News, and it highlights um, wasteful spending, and it's named after the horseshoe-shaped toilet bowl that cost the Pentagon $640, <laughs> but only $2 to make, yes. So, oh, I love it. I uh, love the spirit it. of Bill Proxmire, live and well. Well, Peter, one last question before we go, because I know you got to go. I wanted to ask you, uh, your book comes out, you always have material that comes out afterwards, you get a hold of afterwards. Where do you think the profiles of corruption storyline goes? What are some of the new storylines emerging because of your great research?
1: Well, well, certainly I think the issue of uh, the Biden relationship to China and how that is going to influence his policy continues to evolve. Um, and that is added to by the fact that, uh, you now have Michael Bloomberg, who's dropped out of the race, but who's pledging, uh, to spend, you know, perhaps half a billion dollars or more to help elect Donald Trump. And, and what's interesting about that is you have Joe Biden, who, who, you know, in the public record has been pretty soft on China. Uh, Michael Bloomberg has as well. Um, you know, in some of the statements he's made about China basically being a democracy and, um, I think it's very interesting and should be very troubling to people that both the Biden family and Michael Bloomberg, through his company, have deep commercial ties to Beijing. They, do. Uh, they both know that they have made money, they have profited, and they've benefited from those relationships. Uh, and unless they want to tell us, you know, unless Michael Bloomberg wants to tell us that it is his honest assessment as a political scientist that China is a democracy— I think the only explanation for... <laughs> That's their going to be a hard sell, the, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the the only the only explanation for the soft posture of both men is the fact that, that they are in the business of making money and they owe a lot of their financial success um, to the Chinese relationship. And that, I think, should be a, a troubling, concerning issue going forward that needs further investigation.
0: Yeah. And another guy who's going to open his checkbook big in the fall election um, is George Soros, of course. And uh, one of the things that I think all of us as reporters need to do a better job, we're now in an era, you know, we we spend, the last two scandals have been about Russia and Ukraine where you hear the word oligarch. And the big concern of oligarchs is they've amassed so much wealth, they're able to affect the policies and and, um, politics of a country because they just have enormous wealth. But you have between Soros and Bloomberg, two guys that could spend a billion dollars each in this next year to potentially influence the election. Are we in America moving to an era where we have our own political oligarchs?
1: I think we are. Um, and look, I think it's going to be interesting again to see if this is actually reported on by the media. Because yeah, remember, point. John, in, in 2016, we were told that you know what was it, $100,000 in Facebook ads bought by Russian entities.
0: That's right. Um,
1: was was a massive interference um, in in the election? Now, I'm not equating the two in the sense that that you know Soros and and Bloom have the absolute right um, uh, to do it. Um, it's not covert. They're, they're, they're Americans, and they're entitled to. But the issue of interfering with an election, if you're talking about two individuals spending a you know, billion dollars or more uh, for the purpose of electing one individual, that ought to be part of the national conversation, and that ought to be exposed. Uh, and it's going to be very interesting to see if if, if the media is prepared to go there, or out of the interests of wanting to see a certain result in the uh, election, I decide to stay quiet. But I I agree with you. I think this is a major concern going forward. I'm a big believer in the First Amendment, but I also think... We need to have great transparency so that people know exactly who is trying to influence our national politics in such a such a large way.
0: And what do they get for that money? I mean that's the part we don't get to see. Yes. We do get to see the money spent, but you know, what happens behind the scenes at the State Department when a George Soros calls or a Michael Bloomberg calls, that's where journalism has a great opportunity to shine a light.
1: No, you're exactly right. And we saw a little bit of this, you know, looking back at the Clintons, if you that's remember right. in, in twenty sixteen. You know, the State Department emails that were released, um, you know, donors that gave to the Clinton Foundation were designated in official State Department emails as FOBs, friends of Bill.
0: Bill. (laughs) And when
1: it came to when it came to everything from, you know, setting up meetings with certain officials to getting contracts or trying to get contracts for Haiti Reconstruction, FOB was invoked again and again and again. So it shows how, you know, even somebody giving $250,000 to the Clinton Foundation gets inside access uh, and gets favors uh, through official State Department channels, you can imagine what somebody giving $500 million or more might get in exchange for that
0: support. You can only begin to imagine at that level. It's, it's exactly right. Well, you know, uh, Peter, I grew up... Um Uh, reading great journalists like Jack Anderson and uh, wanted to aspire to be like them. And I have to tell you, we are so lucky that you are in this business doing what you do, shining a light where few journalists have the courage to shine it today. And thank you for it really is a service to our country when you when you write these books and you give us the factual basis to understand what our leaders are doing. And so from one uh, from one journalist to another, a heartfelt thanks for your great work. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure to be on with you. All right, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Join us at Just the News. Check us often. we have a lot of breaking news. We've got a great team with Sophie Mann and Alex Nitzberg keeping you up to date every day on the breaking headlines at justthenews.com, and we continue to crank out those exclusive news stories with facts. And remember, if you click on the dig in tab, you get to see not the story, but all the facts, the evidence, the documents, the videos, the audio, the links. Everything that substantiates the stories that we're writing about, it allows you to check us and allows you to make up your own mind without us trying to influence your opinion. That's what Just the News is all about. That's what John Solomon Reports is all about. On Thursday, come on back. We have a special guest. We're expecting KT McFarland, the former deputy national security advisor, to Donald Trump. A person who was close to Mike Flynn saw the attacks on Mike Flynn and how the takedown of Mike Flynn occurred in January, February 2017. You're not going to want to miss this. It's a big story, one that could resonate for days. KT McFarland on Thursday. Until then, have a great week. We'll be back on Thursday with John Solomon Reports.